following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcasting Network. For a full list of our shows, as well as breaking sports news and engaging feature stories, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com. I'm Chris Horwoodell, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to the first edition of Tales from the Association. While this wasn't the first recorded episode, of those earlier shows, it really did seem like the best entry point into the series. My guest here is Dan Dickow. Dan's a star point guard from Gonzaga who ended up being a first-round draft pick and playing for quite a few NBA teams over the course of a very respectable NBA career. In this episode, it's very clear just how much of a business the NBA is. And in fact, the team Dan grew up rooting for actually ends up getting rid of him on three different occasions. I enjoyed talking to Dan. Aside from the interesting NBA story, who talks a bit about going into broadcasting and this year's Gonzaga squad. We're very excited about this new show and plan to release two a week for the first couple of weeks. Now, as a huge basketball fan, I can tell you that we've already recorded over 10 of these, and some of the stories range from heartbreaking to hilarious to shocking. We really want this to be a behind-the-scenes look at what being in the NBA is actually like. And spoilers, it's not nearly as glamorous as you may think. One thing I should point out is that at the time of this taping, we didn't actually have a name for the show lockdown, so you do see that reflected in the introduction. Without further ado, let's get into the show. These are Tales from the Association. Tales from the Association, yeah, it's going down. This the podcast, yeah, you heard it all around. Players hit us with that career, cause you know that basketball, man, is not always there. Sometimes it come and go from the recruitment to the college phase, back to the NBA draft, yeah, that's not days. Playing internationally, and at the life at a basketball, man, they gonna tell us all how it go. See, story is how now, now you know. Tales from the Association. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to a special edition of the Underdog Podcast. I'm Chris Hordell, and my guest today, former NBA guard and Gonzaga legend turned broadcaster, Dan Dickow. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Hopefully all is well. All is well. So you uh, let's, start, let's start at the beginning here. You went to high school at Prairie in Washington. What was your recruiting experience like? Um, much, much different than um, recruiting is now. Um, so back in, so I graduated in 97. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, there was literally only four AAU teams. We call them BCI teams from the state of Washington uh, that went out and about and traveled uh, to, to what people know as these exposure tournaments now. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I was able to play going into my junior year for a team based out of Southwest Washington that was uh, coached by my high school coach. And then um, before my senior year, I played uh, with a group that was out of the Seattle area that I think of the 10 guys, uh, eight of us went division one, the other two went division two. Um, but it was, uh, it was, it was a great experience because being from just outside Portland, you know, I would always have to go into Portland, um, to play against guys, um, who I felt, um, could, uh, you know, help expand my game yeah, and sure. work on my game. And then the fact that, you know, you've got to break out of your bubble, um, and be able mm-hmm. to go play against guys from different areas of the country. And I think, you know, after, um, 
that summer before my junior year where I had some success that success with uh, my AAU team had some success at uh, double pump camp uh, where I made an all-star team. I started realizing, you know, these goals that I had set to be able to play college basketball, mm-hmm. um, you know, aren't out of the realm. They, they, they are there if I keep working at it. Uh, and then going into my senior year, like I mentioned, I played on a Seattle based team, but I also, uh, was at the Nike All-American camp, which is uh, which was a big deal back then. Sure. I was the only kid from the state of Washington uh, that was at that. The other kid um, from the state who was invited to a national event like that was Michael Johnson out of Ballard in Seattle, and he went on the uh, to the Adidas camp. So, you know, that's how how it was when I was uh, in high school. Now, I mean, you look at the state of Washington; there's probably 40 AAU teams. Um, you know, it helps with exposure, but it also, I think, kind of waters some things down and gives a little bit of false hope to to some kids um, that think they can play at a certain level that, that in, they aren't setting their goals at the correct level to play at. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, AAU is kind of a polarizing thing. Do you think ultimately it's beneficial or a negative for the development of youth basketball? Well, I think it's a necessary um piece of uh youth basketball and exposure to be able to mm-hmm. you know play at that next level um you know i i do know that usa basketball has has their um kind of research up going up and going right now they've got some thoughts about how they can help um i, I don't want to say clean it up but help sanction it so that you know a lot of the negative stigmas can can be taken out of it mm-hmm. uh I, I think that could be a huge piece i think um you know, I think one of the things that you're always hearing about AAU basketball for the states is, um, you know, people are saying, hey, well, we don't develop players in, in the way they um, do in Europe. You know, that might be true, but unless you're one of these guys who's got true experience on how to, uh, on how these European clubs run things for younger kids, it's hard to justify a lot of your comments. Um, right. But if you just look at the straight, you know, skill sets of many players that come up, you know, that can give you a little bit of uh, a basis for those comments. But I will say this, I think if you're looking at a lot of the younger guys uh, that have come up in recent years, and maybe it's because of, you know, uh, Under Armour's and Steph Curry camp, uh, you know, paying attention to fundamentals and the Nike academies with LeBron and Chris Paul focusing in on a couple specific weekends where they're really working with the younger kids um, I, I think you're seeing some high school kids that are being the one and dones that are very polished um, skill wise. What do you think? Let's talk about the one and done rule. Where do you stand on that? Do you think kids should have to go to college? Do you think they, it should be more like the NFL where you have to stay for two years? What's your take? You know, I think if, if you're good enough, you should be able to go out of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think uh, I get it for the college game. It gives uh kind of a holding place where maybe you can be, have your name known a little bit more before you get into the NBA. But if you're looking at these one and done guys, I mean, they're only going to, they're only in college until their grades come out and keep them eligible for the right. second semester. Right. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a truly, it's a fake year of college for a lot of kids. Uh, I do think that if you gave them the one and done, or excuse me, if you gave them the ability to go out of high school, um, you know, I, I think, um, you would you would see some guys make some good decisions, and, and unfortunately, you would see some guys make some poor decisions. Um, you know, and that's where I think 
he's as a young guy, you don't know where to lean. So you would hope that you've got good guidance direction from, you know, a family background or an AAU program where, you know, people are going to say, well, a lot of these kids in that position don't have that background. Um, but I think the NBA is smart enough to see and understand that where if they do get rid of that, they will have a, I would, and this is just me speaking, I think they would have some sort of support program to help get true um, kind of observations and, and true guidance for some of these guys mm-hmm. on the fence. Um, so I, I think there should be no, um, I think you should be able to go out to the NBA at a high school. I do think maybe if they allow that, but you go to college, I think maybe you look at that baseball rule. Well, or maybe I think it's you got to stay three years. Yeah. I think there's kind of got to be a mix, a give and take on both sides. Yeah, you, you talk about them not being real college students. And, I mean, the Ben Simmons, I'm, I'm a Philadelphia 76ers fan, and the Ben Simmons one-and-done documentary basically shows that this guy, you know, he's never in class. There's no expectation of going to class. He's there to play basketball, and that's – the only reason he is on that campus is, is there anything that these guys are actually getting out of the college experience? I mean, when we talk about the, the top level one and done, the Markel Fultz, the Ben Simmons, Brandon Ingrams. No, no. I mean, you know, I mean, they're getting exposure and they're getting the, the ability to solidify themselves as a, mm. as a, a lottery pick. I don't think they're, you know, they're not, Gaining themselves any responsibility in, right. in, the, in the terms of being a student athlete. Um, uh, now, I think there is a few where, you know, guys like a Zach Collins who came from Gonzaga, from every indication that I was given last year, he, he kept working at it because he didn't know what he was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, he stayed go He kept going to class. He kept working on his, on his uh, education up until he made that decision um, where, you look at a guy like a Markel Fultz or, or a Ben Simmons, like you mentioned, those guys already know they're leaving. Sure. Um, and so they're, they're just basically going to enough classes to stay eligible. Um, but, but truly, what are they learning? Uh, because the way college athletics now is as a big business, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're learning the business side of it as opposed to the education side, which, you know, that, that opens up a whole new conversation that, you know, Jay Billis is one of the guys that's really kind of talking about the discrepancy and the differences. Um, and are they true student athletes or are they just athletes that are being used by universities? Right. I, earlier today I recorded a, an episode with Scott Pollard and Scott was very outspoken about players should be paid at the college level. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think so. I, I don't disagree. Um, the only problem I have is, is how do you truly divvy it up? Right. Um, unfortunately, you're going to have um, one program that generates a whole heck of a lot more money than another, and those programs that don't generate as much money are going to say, well, we got to pay equal. Well, mm-hmm. that's not a free market system like, like uh, a capitalist system that the United States is built on. Um, but the NCAA has never treated their athletes in a capitalistic type situation. So it would take a whole lot of figuring out and that's way above my knowledge or pay grade to be able to do it. But I agree. I think college uh, student athletes for football and basketball should be paid. Um, You know, and the next part is going to come up is, well, what about this sport or that sport? They put in the same amount of hours. Yeah, I get it. You put it in the same amount of hours, but are you 
generating any revenue for your university or creating any revenue for a league or mm. the NCA and the, the flat question, the flat answer is no. The only ones that do that is football and basketball. And, um, you know, I respect athletes in other sports. I respect the effort and the time they put into it. Um, but just because you put a lot of time and effort into something and you're good at it, doesn't mean you should be paid for it. It's absolutely true. Well, let's get back to you. Uh, you end up at Washington out of high school and at Washington, you're playing with future Philadelphia 76er great Todd McCullough. When you saw T-Mac, did you think, this guy's a future pro? <laughs> um, you know, I wish I, I could say yes, that I had a crystal <laughs> ball like that. But I will, I can say that, you know, I played with a really good high school big um, who actually played with me at Gonzaga. And he had great hands, and he could finish, and, and he was great to play with. The first thing you noticed about Todd, whether, you know, uh, when I was on a recruiting trip, played with him for the first time or was teammates, is, I mean, his hands and his touch around the basket mm -hmm. were phenomenal for a guy of his size. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people had question marks with him going into the NBA, but he proved a ton of people wrong. I mean, he battled, he played really well. Um, an unfortunate thing for Todd is, is he had some nerve issues with his feet yeah. that really limited his career and, and made him uh, retire too early. So when we talk about guys like McCullough, and uh, you know, anytime I think of Todd McCullough, I think of a big country in that same conversation. Is there a place for them in the modern NBA? Uh, I, I thought there was a, uh, a place for Shemek Karnowski at Gonzaga. Uh, you know, oh, I think he is very similar to those guys, at least size-wise. Um, you know, I think Shemek is actually bigger than what Todd was. Um, phenomenal hands, phenomenal touch around the basket. Um, but again, that with the way the game is spaced and the way the game is played with pick and rolls, mm -hmm. you know, everyone's always going to say, hey, can this guy guard a pick and roll? Well, if you really watched it, Shemek was unbelievable at guarding a pick and roll over the last couple of years. Um, if you statted it out, and I don't have the stats in front of me, but mm -hmm. I know talking to Gonzaga's stat, staff, I mean, they said he's he was their best pick-and-roll defender as a big over the last five, six years that they've had. Um, and if you watched him, it's not because of his foot speed. It's because of his understanding of um, just how big he is and just how much um, space he can take up mm -hmm. and how much and how well he understands cutting angles off and, and using his advantages. And Dan, when you watch how this game's evolved, do you just sort of kick yourself and think, man, if I would have come along 10 years later? <laughs> Actually, I do. Um, <laughs> and, not, and not in a negative way. I mean, I think it's just in a way that um, the way the game is now with the emphasis on passing, shooting, handling the ball, uh, it fits me perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you look at... Um, you know, in my at the start of my NBA career, it was still post heavy offenses, isolated offenses. Um, kind of, hey, where's our mismatch at? Let's mm -hmm. let's make sure we get the ball at that guy, um, as opposed to free flowing offense with uh, an emphasis putting on the skills that I had. All right. So two years at Washington, the second year you do get solid minutes, but you know it's but for whatever reason things didn't click as well as they could have. You end up transferring to Gonzaga. What made that decision? Well, there's a couple things. I, going into um, 
my sophomore year, I broke my foot in the summertime mm. um, and ended up, you know, basically spending that summer rehabbing um, and then basically barely getting back in during fall conditioning to get ready for the season. Foot problem kept nagging, nagging, and then um, just kind of got to a point where I couldn't take the pain anymore um, after a game against Arizona where I had to chase her hunt Jason Terry, who was oh. um, at the time – player of the year in the country and the fastest player uh, in the in the country as mm. well and then after the game it was like look we got to figure my foot out i can't even move um come to find out i had broken it again and the doctors at that time said well there's actually looks like you had a misdiagnosis you didn't break your foot you just had a uh had, had a little bit of a, a bone bruise that was affected and so you know that was frustrating that set me back and then mm. we realized okay well time to have surgery and so had surgery and during that whole time um, just started getting the feeling that uh, UW wasn't the place for me, um, getting the feel that, you know, maybe Gonzaga was a place that I needed to look at because guys like Richie Fromm, um, Casey Calvary were buddies of mine. Mm. And I, that was the year they made the, the Elite Eight. And I saw how much fun they were having as individuals. I saw how much they were uh getting better as individual players and i also saw you know that there was a culture there after talking to those guys that you know they they were kind of building something special yeah and luckily i was able to transfer and and become a uh a big part of gonzaga basketball myself yeah i mean that's uh that's an understatement you had two great years with the program uh, almost 19 points the first year and then over 20 the second I believe were you a were you WCC Player of the Year that senior season? My senior year, yeah. So um, I was Player of the Year my senior year. Um, there's been many Zags that have won that award, and thankfully I'm able to say I'm one of them. <laughs> well, that, that's awesome. How much do you keep up with that program to this point? Uh, quite a bit. Uh, I actually just since we've been on the phone, um, one of their assistant coaches, who was a, a teammate of mine my senior year, just texted me. Mm. Um, I was hoping to go down there and watch watch uh, the fellas play pickup today, um, just because I got to start getting uh, getting down there and seeing them a little bit before the broadcast season starts. Because uh, I do uh, color analyst work for a number of different outlets, and mm-hmm. one of them is the Gonzaga games. Um, and so, you know, it's always good to kind of um, see them in practice, see them in open gym settings before we get going, calling their games during the regular season. Well, let's talk a little bit about that program. Zach Collins is a guy you've mentioned already, and this is a guy who I was very, very high on going into the NBA draft last year. I actually think he got underdrafted a little bit with how talented he is. What do you think he has in front of him with his pro career? I'm sorry, who was that you said? Zach Collins. I think Zach's going to be a good pro. Uh, I think... um, I would have liked to have seen him stay for one more year. Uh, and, and I say that selfishly as a Gonzaga fan. Sure. Uh, but I also, you know, think it would have been good for his development because if you look at his career, um, he's always kind of been a background guy. Mm-hmm. You know, in college he was, you know, playing behind uh, Chase Jeter, uh, Steven Zimmerman, who ended up both playing and being in uh, McDonald's All-Americans and then Zimmerman in the NBA. Uh, Jeter just transferred Duke to Arizona. So he never started until his senior year where he kind of um, exploded on the scene, becoming a McDonald's All-American. Uh, and then 
at Gonzaga, you know, he came off the bench. So mm-hmm. um, he had some amazing games and really flashed a ton of potential, but he hasn't had to carry the load, so to speak, for, for a game, for a team, or for a season. Um, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a learning curve that some guys have to go through. Now, I'm not saying he's not going to have a good call, a pro career because I absolutely think he is. Mm-hmm. I just think it would have been helpful um, if he would have been been able to learn how to, um, you know, carry a team, um, score when you're getting double teamed every time, make the right decision over and over again. Yeah, it does seem like that Portland system is very conducive to what he does well, though. I think so. Uh, you know, I played for Terry Stotts um, in Atlanta early in my career. Um, and at that time he valued post-ups and, and different actions. And now he, he really values, uh, spacing the floor movement, mm-hmm. uh, threes by, you know, anybody who can shoot them. And I think Zach's going to have uh, some freedom to be able to gradually expand his, his range. You know, I don't think they're going to give him the freedom to shoot threes in year one, but I think he showed last year that he's got touch out to the college line and that he'll get there, uh, in time. Uh, because he's got good footwork, he's got good fundamentals, and, and he's got a good base to his shot. Yeah, Gonzaga's got two other very interesting young players this year, both international players, too, Killian Tilly and Rue Hachimura. I'm really excited about Hachimura. What do you know about these guys? Uh, Rui's going to be a big-time uh, piece for them this year. I, I think last year he probably could have helped them a little bit more if if necessary Mm. the only problem is that they go undefeated for so long and you've kind of got a great set rotation right you want to get a guy like Rui some some experience at what expense I mean you've already kind of got things dialed and rolling um so they never really did that um but he had a great summer I think it was the FIBA U19s I think he was all tournament team he had some really good games uh 6'8 extremely long uh, he can shoot it out to three. His handle's getting better. I think the biggest adjustment for for him coming over here is the culture and the being able to, to quickly communicate on the floor what, what needs to be done, whether it's on offense or defense. I think, um, you know, I think that's going to be key for him this year. If he can quickly understand and, and communicate, I think he's going to play a huge part in what Gonzaga does. And then Killy, I think, Killian, I mean, he's just uh, 6'10", long, understands the game, very skilled, uh, great teammate. I mean, if you look at him, there were times that, you know, he had every right to earn more minutes last year or Mm -hmm. say, hey, I want to play more um, because he was playing well. But how do you take minutes away from Zach Collins when he was doing what he was doing? How do you take minutes away from Jonathan Williams III or from Shemek? He was just unfortunately the the big that was – you know, stuck in that 12-minute-a-game hole as opposed to getting 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. Do you see Hachimura as a small ball four or as a three? I see him as a three. I, I think there will be times he's played as a four for Gonzaga this year, but I think his true position is as a three in the NBA. The handle gets there, you think? It's gotten a little bit better. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, for guys who play the three position i think you know your handle doesn't necessarily have to be creative it just Mm. has to be tight what i mean by that is 
you know, being able to put the ball on the deck for two dribbles in transition where you go in a straight line and get to the rim. Um, whereas as a point guard, you've got to be able to snake in and out of traffic. Um, you've got to be able to, to come off a pick and roll tight with defense and, and create space with your handle. Um, you know, and I don't think that's anything that, that Rui is going to be asked to do this year. Um, and if he gets the next level, like I think he will, you know, that more than likely that's not going to be what he, he's asked to do either. Right. So two great years at Gonzaga, and you end up as the number 28 pick in 1997. What were your expectations heading into the draft? Well, I think I had 18 workouts um, <laughs> leading in, and so it was, a, it was an exhausting time. It was an exciting time. Yeah. Um, you know, there I was all over the board. I mean, I think the highest that – my agent and I felt that I could have gone was, I want to say, 13. We felt really comfortable um, thinking I was going to be kind of around the 20 to 24 mark. And then with every draft, there's always one or two guys that sneak in higher that nobody anticipates. Yeah. Um, and then because of that, one or two guys kind of falls down the wayside a little bit. And that, you know, for me was a negative because I kind of was the guy that got pushed down a little bit because – if I remember correctly, teams that were drafting between, say, 24 to 28, 27-ish, uh, where you're starting to kind of get curious, they didn't have a first-round pick, and I didn't work – or, excuse me, I didn't work out for any of those teams. Mm -hmm. And so started getting word on draft day that as it was going that Atlanta, who I didn't work out for, was trying to find a way to trade up to get a first-round pick from any of those teams and they found no takers until uh, Sacramento was willing to make that trade with them uh, at 28. So it's interesting. I mean, you know, a lot of fans, um, you know, are going to have uh, an idea of how the draft works and they're going to get excited about it, but you know, they don't understand the true workings uh, both on a player side, a player emotion side, a front office side, an agent side on, and how, everything works together it's really interesting it's really unique it's, it, it was it was it was a fun day looking back but it was a stressful day also looking back I can imagine so 50 games with the Hawks as a rookie what's it like putting on an NBA jersey for the first time and all of a sudden you're playing against these guys you watched on TV well, I think you know first I mean I mentioned how you know having a goal to play college you mm -hmm. know but the dream from the time I was a little boy was to play in the NBA so you know, it's like, wow, it's dream fulfilled. Um, but as a pro now, you, you you can't let that last for too long. So, yeah. um, you know, you, you get right back down to business and you, you try to figure out how you can fit in with, with the organization and the team that you're with. You know, and, I, and I've, I've always been a big believer that in college or the pros, unless you're one of these absolute rarities, these, these guys that have been – standouts from day one at any age mm -hmm. um it takes you three years to figure out how to adjust to the next level um and it took me three years to figure it out at the nba level um after quite a bit of bouncing around um so uh there, there's an adjustment there that, that you kind of have to take from being kind of the guy in college um to being just one of the guys um <laughs> Yeah. In, the, in the pros and trying to figure out how you fit in almost on a daily basis. Yeah. You mentioned moving around quite a bit. Do you know how many times you were traded in your pro career or do you just try to block that out? 
I don't know off the top of my head. If, if my wife by chance were sitting here, she could fire <laughs> that number off because she's the one who had to deal with, you know, the moving and the packing and the, yeah. all that stuff. Would you be surprised to know that you or your rights were traded eight times? No, absolutely not. That sounds about right. Um, we always kind of got nervous on draft day that something that something was going to happen. My mm-hmm. phone was going to call. Uh, so in 0304, you get traded to Portland 20 games before being uh, traded again. Is this like, come on, not again kind of deal? It was, and, and that one was probably probably the second hardest trade to take um, because I'm from the Portland area. I grew up around there. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up a huge Blazer fan, Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, Jerome Kersey, Duckworth, and the finals against the Bulls. And, you know, to be able to play for them was, was awesome. And then being able being traded away from them, uh, was not a good feeling at all. <laughs> and then, unfortunately, a few years later in my career, I was playing for him again, <laughs> and I got traded again. And this time, it was on draft day. Oh, that's uh, that's rough. I, I can't even imagine what that'd be like to finally fulfill what's a lifelong goal of playing for the team that you grew up rooting for. And they're like, "No, thank you. We've had enough of this." <laughs> Well, it's funny because that's happened with me now with the Blazers organization three times. So the, the <laughs> trade I had just mentioned, the second time I was with the Blazers, I was traded on draft day after, um, I don't want to say having confirmations from the organization that I wasn't going to be traded, but, mm-hmm. you know, being being made felt that I was a part of the process moving forward with what they wanted to do, um, and then I get traded that, that time. And then, you know, I was lucky enough to, uh, you know, join up on that staff as a player development coach, um, during the lockout year when I thought I was going to get into the coaching side of things. Um, and unfortunately I only, that only lasted for a year before, you know, the whole front office and coaching staff, um, before the whole coaching staff kind of got shook, shook up and, and I wasn't retained either. So, you know, I'm one of those few people that can say they got fired from their dream organization three times. <laughs> well, at least you have that going for you. That's a fun story, <laughs> even if it's kind of a heartbreaking one. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't say heartbreaking. I, I guess maybe disheartening. Cause, yeah, that's fair. You know, I've come to realize that, you know, I think broadcasting fits myself uh, and my family better. Uh, I think it also, um, you know my family and I moved up to Spokane, Washington shortly after. Um, and I think that's been great for our, for my family. We love living up here and we never would have had that had we stayed in the coaching ranks. We probably as just as it was with, as a player would probably be moving around every two, three years now as a coach. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm interested in 0405 with the Hornets. This is your best season. 31 minutes a game, 13 points, five assists. Are you thinking, all right, I'm here. NBA, I'm ready to play. Absolutely. I mean, you work and you prepare for an opportunity to play. Um, and it finally came. And so I'm working my – I worked my butt off for that opportunity, and the opportunity comes, and I'm playing pretty well, feeling good about myself. <laughs> and uh, – uh, you know, it, it was one of those things where 
I didn't want to leave any stone unturned once mm-hmm. I had the opportunity. And I didn't want to let anything come in my way when that came. And, and I was very, I guess you could say I was proud of myself because I went through, as Definitely. you mentioned, um, alluded to some trades, some, some disappointing times where, you know, I, I didn't play as well as I wanted to early in my career. So I couldn't um, beat a guy out or, you know, Dallas, who I was with that traded me to New Orleans, you know, they were already set with, you know, uh, Jason Terry and Devin mm-hmm. Harris at the guard. Um, so there were no opportunities there for me. Jason Terry has just been the bane of your existence since college. <laughs> he has, you know what, but he, he, he was a teammate of mine, my rookie year in Atlanta. Uh, he's also a Northwest guy. He's from Seattle, Franklin high school. Um, and he's, he's, he was a good teammate in, in Dallas. That's for sure. So, amazing to see he's still in the league. Yeah, it really. And uh, what do you think of Marbury trying to come back? No, I, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's, you you want to leave it there? I mean, he's, yeah, I'll just leave it there. I mean, good for him. He's carved out a, a awesome kind of uh, you know career in, in China for himself. He's carved out the ability to kind of really be for all from everything I've heard, a celebrity over there. Mm-hmm. So I mean, he's he's done a heck of a job extending his career. Um, but I mean, I turn 39 years old tomorrow and, uh, you know, knowing that he's older than me, I mean, the preparation to get yourself back into NBA shape, holy cow, that would be difficult. Oh, I can't even imagine. You're a little bit older than me. Not that much, but it's, I, I struggle just all of a sudden playing pickup twice a week is, is I'm sore for two days afterwards. I don't remember (laughs) it being like this. Yeah, luckily I haven't gotten to the point where, knock on wood, you know, I'm feeling it a couple days later. Because, uh, well, I guess, one, I don't play pickup that often. But, um, two, it's uh, it, it it goes to show, I think, just how good of athletes and just how good of physical shape um, players are at the peak of their NBA careers. And, and, you know, a guy like LeBron, who's now what? think 34 yes yeah, what like he's that. doing and the minutes that he's playing and the workload load that he has uh, i mean holy cow that's amazing i don't want to get too much into this but do you have a where is lebron james playing next year in your mind i i think he's going to the lakers i just i mean i love the fact that he went back to cleveland and he kind of you know redeemed that organization to win, have an opportunity to win a title and then win a title. Mm. Um, but that front office hasn't, haven't, hasn't done him any favors. I mean, no. yeah, they get him the guys that he wants to play with your J.R. Smith, your Kevin Loves, etc. But when it's so dysfunctional that you can't get your GM situated and you're firing a coach coming off an NBA final yeah. so quickly after some struggles in year two and, um, just, you know, I'm not privy to any insider information of any kind, but just from an outsider's perspective with that organization, from a guy who's been around the NBA and has seen different things, you know, there's something going on there that, that isn't quite right. And so I, I would, that leads me to believe that LeBron would leave to LA and, and the way that, you know, the Lakers roster is starting to form. I think Lonzo's going to be pretty good. I really like Brandon, Ing- Brandon yeah. Ingram. Um, you know, you throw him on a team that, you know, can lessen his workload. Um, 
So come playoff time, he's geared up and ready to go. Holy cow. I mean, that could be dangerous. Yeah, I kind of think Kyrie did him the biggest favor that he possibly could, even if it was unintentional, in demanding the trade because that kind of gives LeBron an out in Cleveland. He can say, well, look, I came back. I wanted to make this work, but maybe the other guys weren't as into it as I was. Yeah, true, true. You know, I mean, I think it was interesting, you know, how Kyrie forced that trade. Um, But I think what people have to realize is, you can't, as an NBA t- player, force a trade. I mm-hmm. mean, you can think that you're forcing a trade, but if Cleveland didn't want to trade him, Kyrie has to show up to training camp. And if he doesn't, he starts getting fined. Um, and, you know, Cleveland probably realized that, hey, this guy's got a whole heck of a lot of value. Let's see what they can get for him. And they felt comfortable with the opportunity with the trade that Boston presented. Well, sure. And obviously NBA players can't force their way out, but how much of a negative is a guy who just doesn't want to be there and isn't afraid to, to let it be known publicly? Um, you know, I've never been in a locker room with a guy that's kind of asking to be traded. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've been in locker rooms where guys are, they're not happy to be there. I mean, uh, you know, those are a dime a dozen, but, you know, actively, you know, saying or having his representatives saying he wants to be traded is something I've never been a part of in the locker room. Do you think Boston's better or worse than they were last year? I mean, they add both Hayward and Kyrie Irving, but they sort of lose what was their calling card in that defensive intensity with Jay Crowder and Avery Bradley. They lose the scoring in the heart of Isaiah Thomas. I'm not sure that they're better. I think they're definitely more talented, but I'm not sure they're better. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not a huge Isaiah Thomas fan personally. I think he's a very good player, um, but I think Kyrie is an upgrade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think where Boston gets hurt is losing Crowder and losing Avery Bradley. I think those are the two guys that hurt them. I think Jalen Brown is going to have a chance to um, improve and show what he can do and maybe open some eyes. Um, I think Jason Tatum is going to be a good player, um, but – you're talking about a rookie and a second-year guy, mm-hmm. um, which there's a reason they went after Gordon Hayward, even if even though they had those two guys, uh, because they, Danny Ainge has been around long enough to know that you can't, um, you know, rely on young guys to do big things if you're trying to go deep in the playoffs. Fair enough. So after your NBA career is over, we have two seasons overseas. What was that experience like for you? Uh, interesting. Those seasons were actually all in one and they were very short. I was with, uh, I signed a two year deal with Avellino in Italy. Um, but we only lasted about six weeks, had an injury, had a contract dispute, um, and ended up coming back early to go to training camp late with golden state. Um, didn't work out simply because I was, uh, kind of on the mend from the injury I had when I was over in Italy. Mm-hmm. And then shortly after that, I went to Germany and played for Bamberg, who's been um, over the last 15 years or so the best team in Germany. Um, was there for about four months until, unfortunately, I had another injury and um, realized that the Europe thing is is, uh, is an awesome experience and opportunity uh, for a lot of guys, but it just wasn't right for myself and my family. And then 2010, you're with Fort Wayne. Is this kind of a last-ditch effort, let's see if this can work kind of thing? I think so. I mean, it was. I played really, really well with Phoenix in training camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Kerr wanted to keep me. 
Um, I was the last cut, um, but the the ownership group just didn't want one more one more contract, um, and so I kind of said, "Hey, I'm gonna stay in shape through this this uh, as long as I can, and if uh, if I get a phone call, great. If not, at around this time, I'll go to the D League." And so I went to the D League, and um, uh, might have been 20 games or so. I played pretty well. Was hoping for a call up half expecting a call-up, mm-hmm. um, it never came. Um, and I ended up uh, getting another small injury that just kept lingering, and, and then I had to be done. Um, and then that, then it was a lockout. And, yeah. and then it, for a lot of guys in the position I was at, you're kind of at the, the crossroads of, am I still a player? Am I looking at the next uh, step of, of life? And the fact that the, the, the lockout was there kind of pushed me in the direction of, hey, this opportunity is coming with the Blazers to jump on as a you know player development coach and then start learning the, the front office side with scouting. Um, and so I felt that was a great opportunity. Um, and I still do think it was a great opportunity. It just you know didn't lead to a long-term position with them. And that leads to your career in broadcasting. And you say, this is, this is where you should be. Yeah, it's something that I enjoy. You know, it's. Uh, um, I, I think I've gotten better at it over the last five, six years. I've had opportunities uh, both on the radio side with Westwood One for the NCAA tournament, as well as other games. I've I had my own radio show here in Spokane mm-hmm. for about a year and a half, two years, and I've done the TV stuff for Gonzaga for Pac-12 Network, a few things for ESPN, and um, you know the beautiful thing about that is it keeps me around the game at, at a high level. Mm-hmm. Um, but family wise, if you get offered a package of games by, by a certain network, um, you know, I can look at the schedule and say, Hey, I would love to do 10 of these 11. I can't make this one because it's my son's birthday. Um, so I, I don't want to do that. And for the most part, they're good with it. They get it. They understand where if you're coaching, you have no say there's right. a game on the schedule. There's a practice on the schedule you're there. Um, and so that, that's one, another reason I really love the broadcasting side of things for myself and my family. Last question I'm going to ask you, Dan, is uh, you did a lot of work for the Pac-12 last year. As a Philadelphia 76ers fan, how excited should I be about Markel Fultz? Oh, I think he's great. I think he's phenomenal. Uh, you know, I, I watched him closely uh, last year. Um, I watched the game against Gonzaga um, where I think he had 27 points. Um, I think he makes the game look very easy and effortless, um, which for a lot of detractors, because, well, he's so good, how come he couldn't help you win more games? He doesn't play hard. Well, I disagree. I think he just he's one of those guys that makes things look so easy um, that it almost makes him look like he's coasting. Um, I, I think he is a – it's still to be determined. Is he a point guard or is he a two guard? Uh, I think he can do a little bit of both, but – uh, it'll be interesting to see how Brett Brown kind of molds him as a player and see what, what he sees his role as. Uh, I don't view him as a great shooter, but I view him as a really good scorer who can also make plays for teammates and make the right pass. I know, you know, he played for Lorenzo Lomar, and, and Lorenzo is a guy that I've known since high school, and I really respect his, his opinion on guys. He he had nothing but positive things to say about Markel off the court as well with his character, you know. And I think that's something that um, you know goes a long way for young players. If you have high character and you understand there's a there's a process 
to, to how your career goes, mm-hmm. you're able to work through some of the rough patches much, much easier. All right, well, that was a special edition of the Underdog Podcast with Dan Dekal. Dan, thanks so much for talking to us. This has been great. Absolutely. Thanks a lot.